the modern western open range, there's a character named Charlie Postalweight. Charlie has a little dog that has been on the cattle trail with them for a number of years. He was saddling his horse and getting ready to head into town to look for a friend of his that had been delayed. They were worried about that friend, and so Charlie was taking Boss Spearman with him. One of the young men that was traveling with him asked him about his dog. He said, are you going to take Tig with you? And Charlie makes this really intriguing statement about his dog. He says he thinks he wants to go. He doesn't. And then a man, a few words, he follows it up with these words. He has the heart, not the legs. That's a really interesting statement. He has the heart, not the legs. Over the course of the last two decades, I've had the privilege of hunting with a brace of dogs where I have seen that very thing come true. Dogs had the heart to go out with us. They had just gotten past the point where their legs could keep up. They had the heart, not the legs. Great statement. It is so simple that it actually applies to a number of different things in life. This idea of having the heart or not the legs. We can twist it a little bit and apply some other facets if we want to, like this. I have always been intrigued, always been intrigued by how things work. I have the heart of an engineer. I'd like to be able to tear things apart, get to the bottom of how they work, put them back together again. The problem is I don't have the mind of an engineer. I have the heart of an engineer, but not the mind. There are other people just like me, but there are people out there that have both the heart of an engineer and the mind of an engineer, and they have created some wonderful things. I would have liked early on in my life to have been able to say that I was one of those individuals. I just don't have the mind for it. My mind doesn't function that way. Yet my heart is still always intrigued. That's exactly the way it works for me. I have the heart to understand it. I don't have a mind that does. But when I see things like this, I will oftentimes rewind and watch at least portions of videos like that over and over and over again. The part that intrigued me the most was how they make Hostess cherry pies. Do you see that? That was good stuff. So I've always wondered about that. Now I know. But there's all kinds of other things that fit in that category, and it blows my mind. Now, I may not have the mind of an engineer, but I was blessed early on with a heart for theology, the study of God. And thankfully, the Lord gave me a mind to match. This morning, I want to follow this same idea, how things work, and show you something that is so basic in Scripture, yet so intricate, that a lot of people miss the depth of meaning in it. We are going to be looking at the idea of grace. Grace is a word we hear all the time, we talk about it, we sing about it, but a lot of people don't understand it. It is my hope this morning not to show you all the ways that grace works or how it works. I just want to show you three works of grace today that will prayerfully give you a better understanding of it. A few minutes ago, we sang the words of a very popular song, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. A lot of people know the story of his life, how he came out of the slave trade into Christianity, and it is quite a story. The part that most people miss is the grace leading up to his conversion. And there was a lot of it. I want to share just a portion of that with you this morning. Listen to this. While aboard the ship Greyhound, Newton gained notoriety for being one of the most profane men the captain had ever met. In a culture where sailors commonly used oaths and swore, 
Newton had admonished several times, had been admonished several times for not only using the worst words the captain had ever heard, but creating new ones to exceed the limits of verbal debauchery. In March 1748, while the Greyhound was in the North Atlantic, a violent storm came upon the ship that was so rough it swept overboard a crew member who was standing where Newton had been moments before. After hours of the crew emptying water from the ship and expecting to be capsized, Newton and another mate tied themselves to the ship's pump to keep from being washed overboard. Working for several hours after proposing the measure to the captain, Newton had turned and said, If this will not do, then Lord have mercy upon us. Newton rested briefly before returning to the deck to steer for the next 11 hours. During his time at the wheel, he pondered his divine challenge. About two weeks later, the battered ship and starving crew landed in Luswilly, Ireland. For several weeks before the storm, Newton had been reading The Christian's Pattern, a summary of the 15th century, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis. The memory of his own, Lord have mercy upon us, uttered during a moment of desperation in the storm, did not leave him. He began to ask if he was worthy of God's mercy or in any way redeemable as he had not only neglected his faith but directly opposed it, mocking others who showed theirs, deriding and denouncing God as a myth. He came to believe that God had sent him a profound message and had begun to work through him. Newton's conversion was not immediate, but he contacted Polly's family, lady who would later become his wife, and announced his intentions to marry her. Her parents were hesitant as he was known to be unreliable and impetuous. They knew he was profane, but they allowed him to write to Polly, and he set to begin to submit to authority for her sake. He sought a place on a slave ship bound for Africa, and Newton and his crewmates participated in most of the same activities he had written about before. The only immorality from which he was able to free himself was profanity. After a severe illness, his resolve was renewed, yet he retained the same attitude towards slavery as was held by his contemporaries. Newton continued in the slave trade through several voyages where he sailed up rivers in Africa, now as a captain, procured slaves being offered for sale in larger ports, and subsequently transported them to North America. In between voyages, he married Polly in 1750 and he found it more difficult to leave her at the beginning of each trip. After three shipping experiences in the slave trade, Newton was promised a position as ship's captain with cargo unrelated to slavery, when at the age of 30, he collapsed and never sailed again. Interesting to see the way God brought him to a point of need. Even, we might offer, a point of brokenness. If this doesn't work, Lord, have mercy on us. What a great declaration from a man who had mocked the things of God. Newton figured out that that mockery was not going to do anything at all to change his life. And he discovered grace, writing about it over and over and over again. Interestingly, in the midst of all of his story, we will find out that it took him a long time to uncover the depths of grace. After he turned 30 years old, never sailed again. He changed his life into the study of theology. He wanted to figure out everything he could about God. Newton, once he had started down that particular path, decided that it was his calling to preach. 
problem was his past was so extreme, nobody would give him the opportunity. He didn't have the funding to be able to go for a formal education, but he had a passion to share what God had done for him, to share what he had discovered about Jesus. It would take him 14 years. It would be 1764 before he was ever allowed a pulpit. And that came as a gift from the Archbishop of England. He allowed him to start preaching in a little tiny community called Almy. 2,500 people lived there. They captured John Newton's heart. He shared his life with them. He preached the stories of his past to them. And he measured grace over and over and over again to those folks. Writing not only sermons, but also songs, hymns. 22 years after he quit sailing, he penned the words of amazing grace. 22 years. He was 52 years old when he wrote it. What a long study of grace. What a beautiful study of grace. Because we sing it as often as we do, and we hear other people sing it in all kinds of different applications, we have this tendency to believe that Amazing Grace just became this instant hit like it is for us. Had to have shown up on Pandora or Spotify right away, and everybody fell in love with it. Well, that's not the case. It was first printed in a little tiny book called The Only Hymns, and it would take roughly 50 more years before anybody else would ever discover that song. 50 years of preparation, 50 years after its existence, people began to sing about amazing grace. And that really is what grace is. It is amazing, but it is not always easy to understand. Sometimes the journey that we travel to get to the place of just opening the door on it is dramatic. And from there, we have to progress on into the study I would offer to you that if we spent the better part of a decade, week after week after week, exploring grace, we still would not get to the depths that there are for us. Grace is truly amazing. It is a gift. And there are several different works that come with it. I want you to see three of those this morning. The first one is simple. Grace saves. Grace brings salvation. But you cannot ever understand that unless you understand the condition of mankind first. So let's go to the book of Romans together. Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 9. If you're a Bible mapper, I'm going to give you some things to map out this morning on the idea of grace. So the way that works is you write grace in the cover of your Bible on one of those blank pages. You put the first passage of Scripture next to it. And then in the margin of your Bible, every subsequent passage, you put the next place that you're going to go to. So this is a good way to map things out. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, for they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, the Apostle Paul just leveled the playing field in a few short verses so that everybody can understand the human condition in its entirety. And here's how he did that. He was writing to a bunch of Jews. They knew about what was happening in the Gentile world. Romans 1 and 2 talks about everything happening in the Gentile world. So when he gets to chapter 3, very early on in the book of Romans, he says, even though there's all this debauchery that's happening with the Gentiles, are we any better even though we're Jews? Not at all. Level playing field. The Jews and the Gentiles stand in the exact same boat where the condition of mankind is concerned. Basically, Paul's saying, we're all lost. We're all in trouble because of sin. And there's one verse out of what we just read that hopefully popped off the page at you because it sums up where we're all at. Take a look at verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. Because of sin, peace remains distant in people's lives. That is true now and it is true in eternity. If we do not discover grace, we will remain without peace. The way of peace they have not known. That's just the deep teaching of the condition of mankind that helps us understand our need. We have to find something that changes that. We have to discover something that will turn that around. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to say this, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, if we understand the condition of mankind, the first passage that we read, this is really in our faces about who God is. God's not going to look upon our sin ever with justice. God is never going to look upon our sin and say, oh, that's okay. All he's going to see when he looks upon us is our sin. There's no peace. There is no relationship. There is no connection. That's what sin does. Well, once we come to that understanding, it begs a pretty big question. If God loves us, how can that be true? How is it that he's going to look upon us and only see our sin and bring judgment? That belays every idea we have ever heard about a loving God. How does that work? Well, Paul shows us. In the next few verses, he is going to show us exactly how it works. Moving on in chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's grace. The word appears right in the midst of it. 
The simple teaching is, Paul says the character of God is going to overshadow the justice of God when he looks upon us because of his Son. Now, the only way we can understand that is by unpacking a really big biblical word. And this is why people stumble over grace, because there's really big words attached to it sometimes, like this one. This is just a fun little word, propitiation. Now, you probably do not use that word in everyday conversation on a weekly basis. You probably don't just walk up to people and throw out the word propitiation and see where it ends. Due in large part to the fact that a lot of people don't know what it means. Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. What in the world? Well, here's what propitiation means. It means to atone, which, let's face it, is another really big biblical concept, the atonement. So we're still stumbling over grace. We hear words like propitiation and atonement, and we don't know what to do with it. Well, here's a simple way to do it. This comes from Phil's simple mind in how it works. The word propitiation actually means to become a peace offering. So would you take verse 25 out of Romans chapter 3 and connect it to verse 17? Let me show you how this works. Verse 17 says, In the way of peace they have not known. Verse 25 says, Whom God put forward is a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Jesus became a peace offering for us. For us. When He died on the cross and His blood was shed, His life was given to close the gap between us and God. Propitiation peace offering. You see, prior to that point, we lived cut off from the Lord. That's the best way to see it. We were cut off. Without this peace offering, there was no hope of us ever being in relationship with the Lord. Without grace, it was impossible. I would boil it down like this, and this is again a very simple way of looking at the teaching of Romans chapter 3. Prior to grace, prior to Jesus, we were dead to God. Now, if you've ever heard anybody use terminology like that, you're dead to me, it means you are cut off. They're put outside of their clan, they're put outside of their family, they're put outside of their circle. When somebody says, you are dead to me, what they're really saying is, I will never give you another thought except that of grief. That is the only way I will ever think of you again. You are cut off from me. And it makes me very sad that based on your actions, based on what you have done, I've had to say something like that, but you are dead to me. That's what God had basically said to us. Again, a simplified version of it. But then Jesus comes. Grace comes. And everything was changed. Everything was changed. We were made alive We got to come back to God, welcomed into the family, called His children, given a place around His table and a room in His house, given access to all that He has. We were made alive through Christ. Amen? That's the first work of grace. When people have been cut off, when they are declared dead to someone, they use all kinds of different terminology to try to close that gap, things like this. They'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Or this one, I really like this, please forgive me. Those are words of reconciliation. And when we use words like that with God, He welcomes us in. Please forgive me. 
When we look at our sin and we know what it has done and we ask for the Lord's forgiveness, God extends it freely, justly, because of Jesus and through grace. Now, once that happens, something else takes place as a work of grace in our life. We are set free. Now, this is where we get a little deeper into the idea of grace, and it becomes more difficult for people to understand. Oftentimes, we believe that to be set free by grace simply means that we are freed from the penalty of our sin. But there is a whole lot more that goes with it. Go with me to Romans chapter 6, will you? If you're mapping your Bible, this is a good stop. Romans chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that's where that teaching comes from. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that is great teaching. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. What a blessing! The blessing of that has been distorted through the years. There are mainline denominations that have distorted this aspect of grace so much so that they have created their own theology. Now, we're looking at some big words and trying to figure out how this works. Here's another good-sized word for you. Antinomianism. It's coming up, so you can see it for yourself. Antinomianism. Now, let's just all say that together, partly because it's fun. Are you ready? Antinomianism fun little word. Antinomianism, a doctrinal term, is actually full of all kinds of false teaching. Now break the word down with me and you'll understand why. The word anti means against. Nomos, which nomianism comes from, means moral law. Antinomianism says that a person who buys into it is living against moral law. The teaching of a lot of different churches and the distortion of grace says that because I have been freed from the penalty of sin, I can go out and sin as much as I want, and God will continue to forgive me. I can do anything I want with no consideration for another person, only for myself, with no consideration for God, and here's the worst part, no consideration for the relationship. It is a distortion of grace. That's what antinomianism is. But it is based on the verses that we just read. The problem with that basis is it ignores the verses prior to it. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, that's the antidote to antinomianism. Are we supposed to go on sinning? By no means. We've been delivered from the penalty of it, praise God. But here's the best part. When we were freed by grace, we were freed from the bondage of sin. 
the things that used to control you no longer do. When you get into grace, the sin that used to define your life, just look at John Newton, begins to fall off the page. You are freed now through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to get past those things. That's what we are freed from. It's the bondage, the pull of sin. I would like to tell you that that is an instantaneous thing. And for some people, it might be. But for most people, just like John Newton, it's a process. Today I see this as sin and I'm going to address it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow I may see other things. A year from now, ten years from now, I may see other things. And I will address them as sin in my life. And I will trust the Holy Spirit to give me the power to move past them. Even though they've been with me forever. I've been freed from the pull of sin. That's part of grace. That's one of the beautiful works of it. But if we stop there... All we're ever going to do is build a list of things that I can do and I can't do. And a lot of Christianity has been defined by those lists through the years because they've never chosen to dive deeper into grace to see the other aspect of freedom. Here's the way I would define it. You are freed through grace from religion into relationship. Does that make sense? We get to move out of religion that defines everything by a list of rules into relationship so that the things that I choose to do with my life will bring glory to God and deepen my relationship with Him. And in that freedom, I may find things that religion says I could have never done, but God says, hey, I created it. Enjoy it. It's okay. When we are freed from religion, and the Jews got to experience this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a huge way, all of their man-made rules fell off the page. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law of God that you might have relationship with Him, not a religion that holds you down, but a relationship with God. Here's what that looks like. Let's go out of the book of Romans into the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. For whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, there's a lot that goes with the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we don't have enough time to get into it. What I want you to see is this work of grace where we are freed from the bonds of religion and the boundaries of religion to move into relationship. And Paul says, all things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. It's okay for you to look at all this freedom, and if it is beneficial in your relationship with God, enjoy it. Enjoy it. I'll give you a simple little example. I've come across a number of different people through the years that knew I was a hunter. And Tina and I have served in some non-hunting places. And I have been accused over and over and over again of destroying God's creation and so on. And I've been able to go back through Scripture and say, let me show you how hunting is a part of, of God's creation, a part of God's plan. And yes, we are free to enjoy it. And I'm not going to let you tell me that I can't. Because the Bible says I am free to enjoy it. And it is a great aspect of my relationship with God. I am freed into it. That's the relationship. Freed from religion into relationship. There are a number of different applications of that. And we could go on and on and on into them. 
I just like that one because it kind of connects a little bit to the whole meat thing Paul's talking about. So it's a good way for us to apply it today. There's a number of things that religion would tell us we can't do that Jesus would say we can. In relationship to him, we should. That's the way it works. Because Jesus would say this in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to turn with me. Just listen intently. This is verse, or chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the teaching of Jesus. Come to me if you are are weary and heavy laden from the bounds of religion, and I will introduce you to relationship to Christianity, and all those rules are going to fall away. And now I want you to understand all that I have brought to you. My burden is easy and my yoke is light, Jesus says. I'm not going to weigh you down with do's and don'ts. I'm going to welcome you into relationship and let's grow together. That's grace. That's grace. In the midst of it, the Bible would teach this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're out. You're into relationship with Him. Live like it. Live like it. That's grace. Live like it. Live in the relationship and grow in it. And it will take you places you didn't think you could ever go. It will take you into the depths of the kingdom of God in ways that people that don't ever experience Jesus Christ will never, ever experience Grace takes you there, and you're free to get there. How cool is that? Here's the third work of grace. We are almost done. The third work of grace is one that many people miss. And I'm going to have to take you to 1 Corinthians 15 in order for you to see it. As we go there, I want to ask you a simple question. Have you ever found yourself at the end of your abilities, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to make your way through something, not knowing what the next step might be. I find myself there all the time, just out of curiosity, how many of you have been to the end of yourself a time or two? One of the works of grace is to meet us right there and help. I'll show you what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, listen to this, verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul just showed us two of the works of grace right there. He started with the first one. 
It is by the grace of God that I am who I am, that I am saved. And it is by the grace of God that I am doing what I'm doing. Because, according to Paul's own teaching, on his own steam, he could have never been the preacher that he was. He could have never had the effect that he did. It was through the grace of God, Paul's own teaching, that he was able to do it. Which means, very simply, he reached the end of himself and God took over. That's a great place to be. When you are at the end of yourself, in relationship with God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, you have the power to take the next step. You have the power to figure it out. It comes through the Holy Spirit. It's called the sustaining work of grace. God helps you when you need Him the most. Jesus is within you, going everywhere that you go. So you don't have to rely on your own power, your own ability. God is there to help. You just have to trust Him. Just trust Him. That's it. Once you get to an understanding of that, you will start doing life with Jesus. By His grace. And that life will be transformed. Let it happen. In the transformation, one of the things that you will find is that you will move away from what has been called over and over and over again the gratitude ethic. Now, the gratitude ethic in the world of theology can really be boiled down to this, and a lot of people live within it. We believe that we have to do the right things because of what God has done for us. It is always in an act of appreciation for what God has done for us. And the gratitude ethic keeps people in, for the lack of a better way of of illustrating it, in a preschool relationship with God. I am only doing what I am doing because of what Jesus did for me. Gratitude ethic. Here's the problem. There are three of them with the gratitude ethic. Number one, it diminishes what Jesus did on the cross for us. He died on the cross to free us not just to make us slaves. That's all through the New Testament. The gratitude ethic diminishes the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross by, number two, turning our relationship with Jesus into a business relationship. You did this for me, therefore I will do this for you. You did this for me, therefore I will reciprocate. Business relationship. And here's the third problem of the gratitude ethic. It often causes us only to look at our past, never our present nor our future. Once we learn to live in grace and move past the gratitude ethic, we will understand that grace doesn't just take care of our past. It helps us in our present and it determines our future. That's grace. That's grace. And those are three works of it. I'd like to tell you every aspect of how it works, I am still uncovering those things. And I have been studying grace for over 40 years. John Newton, 22 years before he could ever write the words of the song. It is a lifetime study that takes us deeper and deeper and deeper all the time. But along the way, though we may never understand completely how it works, we will understand the works of it. And that's what changes us. And you will continue to discover those things as you study it.